0: Welcome to Work Life Confidential with your host, Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Work Life Confidential gets to the heart of uncomfortable, sometimes taboo topics. Bosses and coworkers behaving badly, other workplace stresses, gender, race, money, and their effect on everything that happens at work and in your life outside of work. Together, we'll find the answers you've been looking for. Now, here is Ken Dolan Delvecchio.
1: Welcome to Work Life Confidential. I'm Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Do you have a friend, a coworker, or a family member who seems to always be nursing an injury? Maybe they tell you that the bruises they seem to get way more than other people are the result of trips and falls. And maybe they also get lots of calls and text messages from their significant other that, instead of making them happy, make them visibly uncomfortable. Or maybe you know someone who tells you that their spouse, and, and this is a quote, that their spouse has the maturity and judgment of a five-year-old and has to be supervised and disciplined in order to keep them in line. Well, let me introduce you to our guest for the hour. Katie Ray Jones is the CEO of the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And that number, so you have it right at hand, is one 800 799 S A F E the hotline provides confidential, immediate support to help victims find safety 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They're always there. The expert advocates at the hotline help callers with life saving resources. They help with safety planning and they also provide a message of hope. Katie is a nationally recognized leader in the field of domestic violence advocacy. She has testified before Congress. She provides guidance on policies and practices to several national domestic violence prevention organizations. Her experience spans many different service levels, including managing programs that provide shelter, legal and medical services, individual and group therapy for survivors and abusers and children, and Katie holds a bachelor's degree in child and family development and two master's degrees. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Ken. So... The stories, the very brief stories that I mentioned, what can you tell me about them? What's going on?
2: Yeah, so I think that um, the examples you gave are um, examples that we hear all the time at the National Domestic Violence Hotline of relationships that are abusive. Um, and we utilize the terms domestic violence or dating abuse. Um, We know that many people across the country are in relationships or cohabitating or married to individuals who are demonstrating power and control tactics to harass, manipulate, coerce, isolate, and quite frankly, terrorize um, their partner.
1: And I wonder if you can go through a, a definition, if you will, of intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and I'm putting them all together and dating violence, mm-hmm. and and talk about the various ways that it shows up in relationships. Absolutely. Um. So domestic violence
2: is a pattern of behaviors that's used by one partner to maintain power and control over another partner who are in an intimate relationship. Um, This could look a variety of ways. I think traditionally, we find that many individuals um, categorize domestic violence as physical abuse, and that is certainly one strategy, but we're also very much aware that a lot of domestic violence relationships have emotional abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, digital abuse, There's lots of different strategies and tactics and types of abuse in domestic violence relationships that may not may or may not have physical violence. So we really want to um, encourage individuals to uh, take a look at our website um, at thehotline.org and look at the power and control wheel because many of the strategies and tactics that abusive partners use are um, highlighted there. And when we think about physical abuse, certainly we think about some of the examples you gave at the beginning around bruises, um, hitting, slapping, physical assaults, spitting on someone um, as well, and then we know that there are the emotional tactics, which is when someone is uh, putting someone down, making them feel bad about themselves, uh, making them think that they're crazy. That is oftentimes something we're, we're hearing on the lines at the hotline, that the partner's going to really extensive lengths to make them feel like there's something wrong with them, Um, playing a lot of mind games or making the individual feel guilty for all the things that are happening in the relationship. Um, When we think about uh, financial abuse, and this is an area that we are, are really diving deeper into as an organization as we've started to hear more and more about financial um, abusive strategies that partners are using around finances, that many times the victim survivor is not identifying as a form of abuse. And this can look many ways, but some strategies we're hearing, some um, really scary things that we're hearing is around partners who are um, stealing the identity of the victim survivor or um, racking up a lot of debt in their partner's name. So they're ruining their credit, um, stealing their credit cards, um not informing them of the finances or controlling the finances and in really extreme situations we have even heard where the victim survivor has to provide receipts for when they go grocery shopping and and how much money they're spending and really account for every penny that is um, being utilized in the home. So financial abuse is something we're really trying to increase awareness uh, around. Um, Sexual abuse is also a piece of this relationship and oftentimes people think of survival will reach out to us and say well we're married so of course I have to have intercourse with him when he's asking for it even when I don't want to or it's his right to force himself on me so we want to be able to educate that uh, regardless of your if you're married dating cohabitating um, your body is your body and your wants and wishes are your wishes and it's never anyone's right to force themselves um, on you um, and that you, it's in a healthy relationship you could absolutely say you know you do not want to have um, intimate relations at any given point in time or intimacy at any level.
1: Well, I'm glad that you're going through all these dimensions because I think it's so important for people to recognize that that the physical dimension sometimes is it's it's just that lingering threat. Maybe there's been one physical attack, or maybe there's been things like a partner putting his or her fist through the wall near the survivor, and there's this idea that don't get me started, don't get me near that. One of the things mm-hmm. I've heard over and over again from survivors is the emotional abuse, and you lay out a whole bunch of different ways that that can take place, and also many of the other dimensions, it's far worse. I've heard a number of people say, I'd rather take a beating than take mm-hmm. what what has been taken from me through all of this terrorism that's been directed toward me over the years.
2: Hey, you're absolutely right. And, and that is a statement we often hear from survivors um, when they've left the relationship. And, and I've heard this as an advocate, you know, from survivors who've been out of the abusive relationship 20 years, who will say, you know, the bruise is healed. Um, the marks are gone, but I can still replay my partner's voice in my head and the hairs on the back of my neck still stand up. Um, or I still cry when I remember things that he said to me or she said to me, um, the healing process is, is a journey for life as, as people work through, um, healing the trauma that they incurred in the relationship. Um, I remember facilitating a support group, uh, one time and and the women were sharing their stories and uh, one of, of the women in the group said you know is there like a textbook that people use to to learn how to harass and coerce and manipulate someone because there are some similarities through in our stories while they're unique and and very different. There are some common threads around the power and control dynamics that were being utilized. And all of them were talking about this emotional abuse and, and how, um, scarred, they felt, after leaving the relationship, because they just had lost who they were in that relationship, um, and everything that they thought they were when they got into the relationship was gone to them. And there was a lot of of self-blame, and we know that this is is common in abusive relationships because the abusive partner is um, really blaming the victim-survivor in the relationship a lot that's going on um, and, and they, that is internalized. And oftentimes when someone calls the hotline, they will say, like, I'm an educated person. I should have known better. Um, I don't know how I could have been so stupid to get myself in this relationship. And we really want victims and survivors to know it's it's not your your fault. And domestic violence does not discriminate, regardless of of race, age, sexual orientation, uh, gender, religion, socioeconomic status, educational background. It can happen to anyone. And it's highly pervasive in our country with one in three women, one in seven men reporting being a victim of domestic violence in their lifetime. It's it's incredibly prevalent. And so it's important that, you know, we're shedding light on the issue of domestic violence, the dynamics that are occurring, and the complexities that are present in these relationships.
1: I'm glad you talked about prevalence. It's a, it's a, it's a worldwide pandemic. And somehow, it still is in the shadows more than not it seems it just is something that people look at as being quote unquote a private matter turn they turn away from it, it it's it, it's something that we need over and over again to shine a spotlight on and i i wanted to ask you you talked about the prevalence across all all population segments one of the things that i've heard over and over again and and I'll just comment on this as well is that well you know there are some cultures where it's more prevalent and and what what I think it's important to emphasize is exactly what you said that this happens in all cultures there are there are strands of cultural tradition that are about domination that are with all of us and it's so important not to say well, it's done more over there than it's done here. Can you comment on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that certainly um, relates to the myth that we often hear as advocates and, and working in the field of intimate partner violence. Um, and in my travels, I often hear people say, well, that just, you know, happens to a certain population of people. And It's absolutely not true. Um, Certainly, as you said, there are some cultural themes around um, male domination, certainly, but we've yet to encounter, you know, in the United States, cultures where people are really feeling like it's okay to physically assault your your wife. Um, We're really wanting to educate individuals about the law and their rights and just that everyone deserves to live in and be in a relationship that's based on dignity and respect. And it's incredibly important that if you're living in a relationship where there is fear, whether there's physical violence, um, emotional violence, sexual violence, whatever might be happening, if there's fear and intimidation, that is an unhealthy relationship could possibly be abusive relationships. So we want to be able to talk about those dynamics and we want, you know, people to know that no one is immune to this happening to them, but being aware of the red flags and warning signs is the first step either for yourself or, or to be in a position to help someone who might be suffering in silence.
1: And I want to ask you to talk some about and we just have touched on this, I think, a little bit. Where is this coming from? There's, there's this myth that it's about anger, and we know that it's not really about anger. Can you talk some about that?
2: Right. Yeah. So, um, absolutely, domestic violence is rooted in power and control, um, and and we talked just a little bit, uh, just previously about male domination, male privilege, a sense of entitlement that is present in relationships where um, there is power and control dynamics at play. Um, and, you know, there's oftentimes that individuals may have grown up in homes where um, there was male privilege in a way that you know the woman was treated like a servant or the, the man made all the decisions in the home and there was a woman's place. To be at home and take care of the husband. Certainly, those dynamics um, could be present in in relationships where there's power and control. We often, you know, now know that where there's power and control dynamics, that there were experiences in the abusive partner's life where power and control was validated and got them what they wanted, which feeds into that sense of entitlement. So whether that's, you know, their their family background where there were power and control dynamics at play, or they um, were in a social group where they saw power and control dynamics, getting them what they wanted, that they began to utilize those in their own relationship to dominate someone. Um, And and that really feeds into their ability to cope. It feeds into their self-esteem. It gives them a sense of control over someone um, and themselves, which we really want to be able to intervene. And so that's not how you move about the world, right? You cannot control someone else, harass, assault another individual, um, but that there needs to be other strategies in your life to to build on your self-esteem and coping skills.
1: And it, it's such an uphill battle because – we see so much of this in the larger world. We see boys being told still, you run like a girl or you throw like a girl, and and being told in that kind of message that you should be different, you should be better than a girl or a woman. And we see... Dominance being displayed everywhere, and I dare say in the political sphere at this point, we're seeing all sorts of abusive messages coming from the very top. And I I think that when we try to help people who abuse to make changes, in some ways it's a pretty upstream battle. Yeah, it can be really difficult.
2: Most of the times when, you know, abusive partners are entering into treatment, it's typically Mm -hmm. court-ordered. And I facilitated uh, perpetrator groups early in my career, um, and it was rare we had someone who enrolled voluntarily. It was typically court-ordered. And it's important to recognize that uh, being an abusive person is a choice. Someone is making a choice to engage in abusive behavior and while I believe people can change, this particular behavior is incredibly difficult to, to unpack and we found like even individuals who go through, um, tri- um, uh, sorry, people who go through um, some type of program to address the abusive behavior we often hear from victims and survivors that the physical abuse stopped, but there's still some other power and control dynamics at play in the relationship, whether that's the emotional abuse, financial abuse, the digital abuse that I spoke about. um, There are still things happening in the relationship that are concerning and and don't necessarily feel healthy. So it's really important that, you know, oftentimes abusive partners will say I'm going to change and I'm going to, you know, go to to therapy or I'm going to get treatment. And as you said Ken, this is not an anger problem, this is a, an issue with power and control, that they really have to be committed to this work. And it is incredibly difficult and challenging, but it, but it is possible, but it is incredibly difficult, as you said.
1: And, and I've heard that as well. I've heard survivors say that sometimes the, the program that their partners went through helped them to be a better terrorist. Mm. And we're going to Take a break here, and we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Stay with us.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Delvecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit greengateleadership.com to learn more and get in touch. That's greengateleadership.com. As a business professional, you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused, engaged, and productive. We all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource, attention. The key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience. We can't always avoid challenging situations, but we can make sure we bounce back. FEI, the Workforce Resilience Expert, is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at 1-800-987-1948 or visit feinet.com. FEI, the Workforce Resilience Experts. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Work Life Confidential. It's time to hear your voice. Call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Delvecchio.
1: Welcome back. We're speaking with Katie Ray Jones, who is the CEO of the National Domestic Violence Hotline. We're going to turn our sights to the workplace. And I was just chatting with Katie and saying the story that I told in brief at the beginning of this show was real and that and it and it's, it's happened many, many times, I'm sure. But there was a situation that I was informed of where an individual would routinely talk about his wife as though she had the sensibilities of a four-year-old. And he would call and scream and yell at her. And then one day he said, I'm going to go home and kill her. And that was when coworkers who had been hearing this for a very long time reported it up the chain of their leadership and to human resources. So Katie, can you talk some about the prevalence that this happens with at work and the toll that it takes?
2: Uh, absolutely. Um, I think the, the statistics are, are quite staggering um, in terms of how domestic violence intersects with the workplace. Um, there was some research done that showed that nearly 33% of women killed in U.S. workplaces were killed by a current or former partner. Um, That's quite staggering and and concerning um, as as we think about this issue. Um, Eight million days of paid work each year is lost due to domestic violence issues. That's the equivalent of 32,000 full-time jobs. We know that when um, a victim is, is being injured, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, and they have bruises, they may, may not, they may call in sick to work or may not show up to work because they're afraid of what their coworkers might say. Um, we know that oftentimes abusive partners may show up at the workplace and create conflict for the survivor in their workspace. We know that oftentimes colleagues and coworkers are very much aware that they've seen changes in their coworkers' behavior, their appearance, something may seem off, but they don't know how to broach the subject in the workplace, don't know how to respond until, like you mentioned, Ken, someone's at the point where they're threatening to kill someone, um, or the person, the the victim survivor may reach out out for help, and then oftentimes workplaces are not equipped to respond in an appropriate way. Um, We know that 96% of victims who are employed do experience problems at work related to their domestic violence, and that often um, appears the way that I mentioned, and I was listening to a call recently on the hotline. Um, where the the victim was talking about um, securing a job, she was, was trying to prepare to get out of the relationship, and she needed to get employment. And she got a job um, at an airport, and her abusive partner called her boss, and seemingly was making it sound like he was thanking thanking the boss for giving her this job, but then gave a very backhanded comment and and said that you know if it wasn't for her having this job, she would still be prostituting. She had not done prostitution in her life, but she ended up losing her job because her employer thought that she didn't fit the criteria they needed for this employment. And so she was heartbroken. Um, and so, you know, we want to do a lot of education with employers about how they can respond appropriately to domestic violence in the workplace, how they can support victims, and how they can also hold perpetrators or or potentially what might be identified as power and control dynamics in the workplace accountable.
1: Well, when you mention 33% of women killed in workplaces were in an abusive relationship, it, it immediately makes me think of the mass shootings that we're killing. And Mm -hmm. so many of them are being perpetrated by people who are abusers in their intimate partnerships. So it just emphasizes so strongly the importance of workplaces knowing something about how to respond. And can you talk some about maybe just the basics for... Because some companies are very well along the path of... Doing some things that are going to be able to identify and provide support and provide accountability as best possible, but many others are are nowhere on that path yet.
2: Absolutely, I mean I think it is really um, a basic step is to get educated as an employer on the dynamics of domestic violence and. Um, Individuals can do that by visiting our website, um, thehotline.org, but also simply putting the hotline's phone number in the restrooms, in the break room. We've seen employers who've done this um, with some awareness material about the red flags of abusive relationships. In some cases, um, employers have posted the dynamics of a healthy relationship and said, if your relationship doesn't look like this, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And that is a great way to put a resource in the hands of someone who may not be in a place where they want to disclose what's happening to their employer. Um, But it is important to think about Um, ways to create a culture in which someone would want to disclose. And having a domestic violence um, in the workplace policy that lets employees know that um, HR or a manager is a safe place to disclose what's happening, because you want to be able to protect other employees in the workplace and your employee as well. And as you mentioned there is a, has been some correlation between mass shooters having a history of domestic violence or power and control dynamics in their intimate partner relationships that you do want to be prepared um, as an employer that You know, anything can happen when there's domestic violence. And the most dangerous time for an individual in an abusive relationship is when they're planning their exit. And that is when uh, lethality in the relationship increases dramatically. And that could be in the workplace. So it is really important to begin to create a culture where employees know that they can reach out for help. And simply as a manager or as an HR person, Uh, Being able to connect them to the hotline and providing them a confidential, safe resource where we have highly trained advocates to help them think about their safety, resources in their local community, as well as provide education about domestic violence is an amazing first step for individuals.
1: Well, thanks for laying that out. And I can let you know, and you know this in my role at Prudential, where I was responsible for the behavioral health programs and services. I and my team would ru- routinely call the hotline and get referred to the most, the most local resource for the employee who needed support. It was an absolute lifesaver for many, many, many people. So let me ask you this question. I have come across some business leaders who say, this well, yes, doesn't happen here. We
2: don't mm-hmm. have
1: people where this is going on. What do you say to them?
2: Well, given the rates that I shared earlier with one in three women and one in seven men, it's nearly impossible to have a workplace that isn't being touched by this issue. Um, And we know that there's a lot of shame and stigma associated with being in an abusive relationship where women and men don't feel comfortable sharing um, what's going on behind closed doors, that it's just not a situation where someone's gonna be talking about it most of the time in the workplace. So if you think that you, you have a company that's not being touched by this issue, you absolutely do have a company that's being touched by this issue. And it's impossible to even walk about the world and not be encountering someone on a daily basis who's who's at some point or currently is a victim of domestic violence.
1: And it, and how can it be that let's say an employee is it becomes known to their company that they have a restraining order that has been filed against them, or they have to appear in court, or even that the survivor is calling the employer, just asking for for some kind of support in, in perhaps helping to contain the abuser. Sometimes the, we've had situations where both the abuser and the Survivor work in the same company, and mm-hmm. the the company then can take some actions to contain the perpetrator. While, for example, the survivor makes plans to leave and and leave the area. But but my question I'm digressing a little bit. My question is: What if what if the guy or the woman who is the abuser identified the, as the abuser is one of the nicest people? that this workplace has ever employed, and it just doesn't make sense to them. How does it make sense?
2: So I think you're touching upon an incredibly important point. Um, So I think that oftentimes people think abusive partners are angry all the time and violent all the time, but they're not, um, which is why it is such a confusing item, like a thing to think about for victims and survivors, because typically the abusive person is liked, um, they're respected. They typically have great reputations in the workplace. Um, they're charismatic, they're the life of the party, but there's someone else in, in their relationship. And for the victim survivor, that's really confusing that, you know, this it must he it really must be my fault like he said because he's this great guy to everybody else but he treats me different so it really must be my fault it must be me and not him so we saw this recently in the media, um, where you know a, a White House uh, official was accused of domestic violence, and we were hearing over and over again, like, how could this be possible? He's such, he's so successful, he's such a great guy, he's a Rhodes Scholar. Um, again, domestic violence doesn't discriminate on on the victim side or the perpetrator side, and so we really want to encourage anyone who's hearing from someone who is saying they're being victimized believe it, um, really, really believe it. And, and immediately move to that place to think about how can you help that individual? How can you support that individual? Um, if, you, a, a victim survivor reaches out and says, I have a restraining order against one of your employees, ask for a copy of the restraining order. You do not need to be an expert in domestic violence and how to navigate the complexities. You can call the hotline and you can ask, like, what should we do as, as a company? How should we respond? How can we support um, our employee? What programs exist for, you know, batterer intervention programs in our local community? There's lots of resources out there to be able to help you navigate this conversation so that you can definitely keep your workplace safe, keep the victim survivor as safe as possible, but also begin to think about um, the accountability for the perpetrator.
1: And... And I want to just throw in a plug also, and sometimes you folks work in tandem, I would imagine, for the Corporate Alliance to End Partner Violence, mm-hmm. which is another organization for employers who want support with policy, who want support with with all the different elements of creating a program. And, and I have to tell you, Katie, I, early on in my career, too, worked in a, an institute that provided provided group therapy for men who batter. And when I took on the prospect of going there and I started the meeting, I thought, what are these guys going to be like? And they mm-hmm. are like everybody else. Some of them are the nicest people you would ever want to meet. They come from all different kinds of backgrounds. They, they do not look or behave any differently in the public world and in the world of work than any of the rest of us. And it's just so important. One of the things that I think is helpful, and you tell me what what you think about this, I always tell people to think about bullying. And if you've ever been bullied or you've witnessed bullying, you have probably seen that the person who bullies only does that when they know that they have control over a significant amount of control over those who are present uh-huh. so they don't they don't bully other people when their boss is there they don't if it's in the schoolyard the a bully isn't going to bully somebody else when their big brother is there who's who's not going to stand for it they do it in the privacy of their own closed system of power and so in the workplace you will see you will see leaders at various levels who are terribly bully or bullying the people who report to them and they're the bullies colleagues and the leaders above them would never have a clue they would not Mm -hmm. have a clue that person is exquisitely sensitive exquisitely sensitive to the dynamics of power in the situations in which they find themselves placed and and I think that's very much parallel to what you see in a domestic violence situation
2: yeah absolutely um, you know, so much of what of what occurs in abusive relationships happens behind closed doors um, yep. which is you know, makes it really, really difficult uh, for the victim survivor to feel like you know, they feel very isolated. And abusive partners tend to really um, engage in tactics and strategies to further isolate their partners. So we know that that's one of the ways that they can keep control over them by isolating them and removing them from their social networks, their friends, their family, um, their colleagues, the best way that they can so that they don't seek that help. And we know that's why the most dangerous time, as I said, for someone leaving the relationship um, is that time when they decide and their perpetrator knows that they're going to leave the relationship. Because what you said, Ken, that is when they begin to lose the control. And it is a tipping point in terms of, of their um, the violence that they're going to utilize to keep control over that person.
1: So the point that I take away from this always is, and you said it before, Katie, believe the person who reports that this is happening to them. Believe them. Don't think about your own impressions of the person who is, being identified as the abuser because your impression may very well not be at all similar to the way they behave behind closed doors. We're going to stop here for just a couple moments and we'll be back.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. As a business professional, you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused, engaged, and productive. We all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource, attention. The key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience. We can't always avoid challenging situations, but we can make sure we bounce back. FEI, the workforce resilience expert, is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well-being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at 1-800-987-1948 or visit feinet.com. FEI the Workforce Resilience Experts. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects, mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit GreenGateLeadership.com to learn more and get in touch. That's GreenGateLeadership.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Work Life Confidential. It's time to hear your voice. Call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work-Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Delvecchio.
1: We're back with Katie Ray Jones, the CEO of the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and Katie, a question for you. Why would anybody, anybody touch somebody who they say they love in a way that is is hurtful, is anything but loving? Why do perpetrators do this? Yeah, I mean I think that's that's always the question is particularly
2: if, if when you're the the victim in the relationship because that person is is telling you that they love you and yet they are abusive to you and it's hard to wrap your head around. Um what we we know right when people fall in in love in relationships in in relationships that eventually become abusive the beginning of their relationship looks like healthy relationships in the beginning. Um, they fall in love and I always tell people, you know, the the birds are chirping, the sky is brighter, the flowers are brighter, just everything's wonderful. And um, the physical abuse or the really extreme abuse does not happen right away. Um, Typically, we hear stories of, you know, there's isolation. There begins to be intimidation. But even isolation is demonstrated in a way is which the perpetrator is saying, I just, I love you so much. I want to spend time with you. Do you have to go out with your friends tonight? I just want to be alone with you. Or there's jealousy in a way that feels like this is a demonstration of someone loving me. And survivors will often tell you, I still saw glimpses of the person I fell in love with that they weren't this abusive partner all the time. And when I would see the side of my partner I fell in love with, or they told me they would change, or they told me it was going to be different, I believed them. And we would have these periods of time where things would be better, and then the abuse would come in again. So I think it's always important to remember you know, when someone is, is reaching out are telling you that we want to be non-judgmental because we know that those pieces of the relationship that made them fall in love um, are still present, and and the perpetrator does tap into that side of the relationship on a regular regular basis. And I know so many survivors who still to this day say, you know, how did I love someone who hurt me in this way? And even after they've left the relationship, they still talk about seeing glimpses of that person they fell in love with. And when things were good, they were really, really good. But when they were bad, they were bad.
1: And I've heard the stories, too, of the abuse creeping up slowly and in terms that are seductive. That friend of yours, she's just, she's just no, she's just no match for you. You really shouldn't be spending time with her. You should be spending time with me. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't look, you don't look good with that kind of haircut. You look even better with your hairstyle the way I like it. And mm-hmm. escalating slowly. Why are we hanging out with your brother? Your brother's stupid. We, we've got lots of better things to do until the, the pattern has escalated to a point where there's there's little support. And it, It's so insidious in so many cases. And I really think that that question of why would anybody do this is much more the right question than the one we hear way too much, why does she stay? I, I mm-hmm. think you talked about before so many of the reasons why, People who are being abused stay in the situations they are, whether they are economic in in nature or whether they're based on threats of harm to 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 the survivor or to loved ones. There are reasons, and it's it's a very complicated it's a very complicated question, and the answers have to come from the person who is who's living through it and surviving through it and doing the best they can to survive how do you help a friend a coworker a loved one who comes to you and, and begins to tell you about this happening to them
2: So it's a a critical moment when someone reaches out out for help um, to be in a position to respond in a supportive way. It's it's really quite simple. Just be supportive, right? Acknowledge that they are in a difficult situation, that you care about them and you want the best for them. Being supportive and and most importantly, listen, just providing a space to just listen and, and creating space for the um, the victim survivor to be able to, to talk to you about what's going on. Um, as I said earlier, being nonjudgmental, and, and I think this is often a challenge uh, for the person who's in the helper position, um, because it, as caring people, we want to get them out of that relationship, get them to safety. But in most instances, the, the victim doesn't want to leave right away. Um, we're finding more and more that victims want to plan, plan their exit and be thoughtful about their exit. And as I've, I've said several times, we have to be thoughtful about that exit because it is a dangerous time when you're leaving the relationship. So really being in a place to not criticize their decisions, knowing that, um, as you said, Ken, there are so many reasons why victims stay in abusive relationships we want to respect those decisions and not give up on them. And, and that's often our second highest contact type here at the hotline is from friends and family. And oftentimes they're frustrated because they're like, they just, you know, she left the relationship. Now she went back. She left the relationship and she went back. I just want to throw my hands up. I'm done with it. I'm going to do tough love. That is exactly what the perpetrator wants because that isolation that plays in, in abusive relationship is so prevalent and, So we really want to be able to support the person no matter what their decisions. And we want the the helper to take care of themselves, too, and recognize like this could be exhausting for you. So you have to take really good care of yourself. Reach out to resources. Call an advocate at the hotline. Um, Begin to think through strategies with an advocate at the hotline, how you can continue to support that person. You can help them develop a safety plan, thinking of um, strategies and ways that they're going to stay safe in in the relationship, how they're going to prepare to leave, or if they've already left the relationship, things they need to be thinking about. And that's all available on our website. Um, you can even like click on a link and, and see a template on things that you should be thinking about. Um, but it's also important to remember that you, as that helper, cannot rescue someone. Um, that you really want the the victim to be making the decisions in uh, their relationship. They are already in a relationship where someone has has taken their power from them, um, who has removed their ability to make decisions. So being able to be in a place where you can help give options to the victim and supporting them in choosing what decisions and choices make the most sense for them is a really great empowering place um, for you and the victim to be.
1: Well, it's so important what you're saying. And it also sparks in me the recollection of the ways that the helping professionals have historically looked at survivors and blamed them and actually Mm -hmm. given them, given them the responsibility for the abuse. And of course, This is not their responsibility at all. This is entirely the responsibility of the abuser. But there's such a history. And in the family therapy literature, which I'm familiar with and which I've contributed to, there's a lot of that kind of of blaming. And it's so important to realize that this is not brought on by some kind of problem in the psychology of the survivor. It's brought on... By the fact that so many people, most of them men, not entirely, are prone to this kind of escalating control within relationships. What what I think it's important to note is that if any one of us, if any normal human being, reasonably normal human being, oh. is is is, and I'm thinking about myself when I say. <laughs> is 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 confined in a hostage situation an escalating hostage situation for perhaps months or years what we tend to develop any normal human being will tend to develop post trauma symptoms mm-hmm. Because we're in an extraordinarily endangered situation. We're in a situation that in too many cases indeed turns out to be life-threatening. So that's what we need to be mindful of, that we're working with somebody who is under the most extraordinary pressure. And so, and and they know the situation. They know what's going on. They yeah. are perhaps not saying some of the things that are happening because they're unspeakable or they fear that somehow they might, they might get out or get back to the abuser. I, I wonder if we could talk just for a couple moments, if we could talk about what men can do, because this is a problem mostly created by us men. And so maybe some of your thoughts and I'll share some of my thoughts as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We we are in a space where we really want to encourage men to get educated on the power and control dynamics and hold men accountable. Um, the the story you gave at the start of the show, um, where people were hearing really derogatory comments about this man was making about his wife, it's an opportunity for an intervention. I mean, we hear some of... Um, the rhetoric we've been hearing in recent about, you know, quote unquote locker room talk. That's just locker room talk. It, we really need to move to a place where um, that's not locker room talk, degrading women, speaking poorly about women, um, Having men in this space who can say that it's not okay to speak about women that way, or men who are speaking really positively about their partners, is really where we want to begin to build a culture where domestic violence isn't just a women's issue. It's an issue all of us need to be tackling and being involved in because this is completely preventable. And if, you know, we said that one in three glasses of water had lead in it. We would all jump and say, don't drink the water. Well, one in three women in this country are going to experience domestic violence. What are we all going to do to say, stop, this is not okay. How are we gonna intervene? Because even if we are able to get the victim out of the relationship and she chooses to leave and she's living a sustainable life, there's a really good chance that perpetrator is going to find another victim. So we have to create a culture where we are going to say domestic violence is not okay. We're going to hold men accountable to their abusive behavior and really demand change.
1: And and I, I think that, it, that we have such an important role to play, men, because unfortunately— we listen to each other more respectfully, more responsibly, way too frequently. If, if a man says to another man, it is not okay to treat anybody that way. I, I want, I get worried for you and for her when I hear you talking that way, that, that's important and and we need to do it more. We need to do it even though it goes against the time honored tradition for so many men of just supporting one another blindly. Support in this kind of a situation is not going along. It's it's drawing a line and saying I care about you. I'm very concerned about what you're saying. How can I how can I help you to get the kind of assistance you need so that you're going to stop treating a person Treating your spouse, tr- treating the person you're dating in this way, it takes a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be about courage, and I I just feel like we have such an opportunity to to be a big part of the solution. And i I, I hope I hope more of us take it more consistently.
2: I agree with you, absolutely.
1: So we are just. Edging up on the time where we need to close, we've got about a minute left. Are you hopeful, given the, the hashtag Me Too moment? Do you feel there's more energy toward ending the scourge of intimate partner violence? Yeah,
2: I certainly think the, the Me Too movement is creating an additional platform and, and space for women to be able to share their stories. Um, and and disclose and feel supported. Certainly we have a lot of work to do, um, but I am hopeful that as we continue to see opportunities for people to share their stories and feel supported and validated versus shamed or guilted into what happened, um, that we're going to continue to move the needle on this issue.
1: And, and that's going to have to be the final word. Thank you so much, Katie Ray Jones. I'm Ken Dolan Delvecchio. You've been listening to Work Life Confidential. I'd like to thank our executive producer, Randall Libero, and Josh, our engineer. And thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you for listening to Work Life Confidential with Ken Dolan Delvecchio. We hope you've taken a bit of wisdom from today's program that will help you at work and home. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have an outstanding week.